0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. I want to say thank you to our worship team. And uh, hey, thinking about the men's breakfast yesterday morning, it was such a blast. I want to say big thanks to Adam McMahon. Behind me, him, Mike Hoslow. Y'all, they planned the whole thing. And uh, we had a lot of guys here early up here, about 6.30 in the morning, serving and cooking. I uh, saw Randy Cheatham behind the grill. Now, there was less bacon. Uh, some of the bacon didn't quite make it out here. Uh, I think it, quality control, right? Quality control. Uh, Kent Miller, I saw back there, cooked some mean pancakes. Uh, so thank you guys so much. We appreciate you. If you want to get out your Bibles, uh, you can turn it to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, Y'all may not know it. This is a big day for our church. I want to begin by telling you a story. It's a story that all of you know some part of, but very few know the whole story. Uh, So on May thirtieth, nineteen eighty-two, a year before I was even born, I wasn't even around yet. About thirty people, average age was twenty-nine years old. I call it the thirty under thirty. Met for the first meeting of Bethel Bible Church. They, uh, they met some borrowed building. They talk about it. he lugged a bunch of packing plays up a bunch of stairs back and forth. Uh, for the kids, they sang some songs. They opened God's Word, and that was the first meeting of Bethel Bible Church. Y'all, that was 40 years ago. Isn't that amazing? You know, many of them st- are still here. Y'all heard a little bit of Paul's story. Uh, he was part of that 30 under 30 group, and You talk to a lot of these guys. In fact, one of them is even kind of writing down a a history of Bethel. I think they'll tell you there were really two things going on that day. Now, one thing, the first thing going on that day was their plan. And it was a big plan. They had big hopes and dreams, and uh, it was uncertain. It was essentially, you know, how can we keep meeting the next few weeks? How can we scrape up a few bucks to do what we need to do? How do we uh, write all the bylaws that we need to write? How do we find people, and what do we do with our kids? It was all that stuff, all All the things you'd imagine. But there was something else going on that day. There was God's plan. God was doing something that day that, frankly, they had no idea about. See, God knew a lot of things that they didn't know. God knew about us. God knew about me. They hadn't met me. I wasn't born yet. They knew about the, God knew about this White House campus. In fact, God knew that today there would be five campuses, that there would be thousands of lives changed. God had plans that they couldn't even comprehend 40 years ago. Now, two plans. Let me ask you something. Whose plan was bigger? Whose plan was bigger? It sounds obvious, right? God's plan was obviously bigger. I mean, as high as their hopes were that day, they couldn't imagine all that God would do. They had no way of knowing how far that those few dollars and those few hours of their time and their prayers would go. And men and women, it works that way every time. God's story, what God is doing, God's plan is always more than we can ever imagine. The same thing happened, in fact, here at Bethel just eight years ago. Eight years ago, we had a capital campaign, and part of that campaign was to start one campus, this one. This campus didn't even exist yet. We didn't know how we were going to make it exist. And a bunch of people that most of you have never met gave generously to start this campus. And y'all, to us, that was what they call a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. We didn't know if it would work. We didn't know how we were going to do it. It seemed like a big deal and hairy and audacious and all of those things. But out of a desire, out of a conviction to see the gospel spread, to see lives transformed, to reach this local community, we stepped out in faith and we did it. And y'all, God did three times more. We thought the best we could hope for was one campus. It turned into three campuses. We had no idea about the Hope Campus and the Henderson Campus. Now, understand understand this, y'all. When I say campuses, I'm talking about people. I'm talking about lives. I'm talking about communities. That is three communities we used to not have a presence in that we do now. That is countless people we used to not have a relationship with that we do now. And that presence those relationships, that leads to life transformation. That leads to people being redeemed in Jesus building his kingdom. And you know what? We shouldn't have been surprised. We were, but we shouldn't have been because when you look in scripture, that's the way God's always done it. I want to go back to the Old Testament. So it's amazing that our this year is our 40th anniversary because 40 years is actually a big marker in the Old Testament. It comes up over and over again. There's several instances. So David's reign was 40 years. Another one that big one that comes up very often is the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, that transition from Egypt to Canaan. And there's a couple times that Moses he speaks to the people and he reminds them what God did looking back over those 40 years. Let's look at one of them: Exodus 16. 35, Moses writes and he reminds the people of this. He says, the people of Israel ate manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now, I want you to understand what a miracle this is. This is impossible. For 40 years, they were in unsurvivable wilderness. You do not last more than a couple days here. And yet, every day provision showed up. God says there was never a single day that I did not provide you all the way across the finish line for 40 years. He reminds him again, Deuteronomy 2, verse 7. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. God looks back and reminds him every step of the way I was with you. Not one of those steps did you ever lack anything. Every step I was with you. And you know what? Here at White House, I think looking back, when we have to say the same, have we ever lacked for anything? No. God has always provided. So here's what I want us to do this morning. First of all, I want everyone to relax this morning. I know you probably know something's up. You're f- throwing through your bulletins. You've seen the posters in the lobby. You're like, okay, there's something different, something going on here. Listen, no one is going to ask you for a dollar today. That's not what we're here to talk about today. My goal today, what I want to happen today, is I want us to recapture the wonder of an exceedingly abundant God who has with, has with us every step. Of the way who always provides. So here's our big idea today. And I'm telling you, if this will get into our hearts, it will completely and radically reprioritize our lives. The bigger story is God's glory. The bigger story is always God's glory. And so to do that, I want us to look at what, y'all, it's one of the greatest prayers in all of Scripture. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, where Paul prays for the church. Let's read, starting in verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with his power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul here, he he prays for all believers across all times, all places, the whole church. Y'all, Paul is praying for you here. He's praying for us. The first thing I want us to notice is his disposition. It says he's kneeling before the Father. Yo, this is unusual. This is unusual in the Scriptures. In in the Bible, usually people stand to pray. So you read the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The the tax collector is standing, and even as he prays and beats his chest, Jesus talks about the Pharisees, they would stand on the corner to pray. Even today, if you go to the Israel, you go to the wailing wall today, they will stand at the wall and they will pray to God. That's normal. There's a few times in Scripture, though, we find people on their knees before God. And it's a, it always shows an unusual level of passion, always mixed with humility. So we see Solomon, when he dedicates the temple that God built, We see Ezra when he's confessing the the sins of the nation to God. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And we see it right here. Paul in some prison cell getting on his knees before the Father for us, for the church. He has two requests in his prayer, essentially. The the first is that we will be strengthened with power. Yeah, power. That sounds great. Well, how? How does this happen? How are we strengthened with power? He says, according to the riches of his glory. It is a picture of supernatural abundance. Now, y'all, those of you who are married, you may be like me every once in a while. We'll go out to eat somewhere. Uh, maybe somewhere casual, some kind of fast food place. We go to the counter to order, and we place our order, and inevitably my wife says, hey, I'll take the number one, but I don't want the meal, I just want the sandwich. See, I'm not going to eat the fries. I like fries, so I I order the whole meal. Give me all the fries, I want them, I'll take them. So we go, and we sit down, and I'd say probably a minute goes by before my wife asks me a question. And you all know what question it is. Can I have some of your fries? (laughs) Sometimes I'm not a very good husband, okay? And, you know, I know it's good for me, so yeah, I give her some fries. But I don't want to do it because all I'm thinking is, well, if I give her some of my fries, I have less fries. Should have ordered fries if you wanted fries, right? That's right. (laughs) I'll speak of the next men's breakfast. We can talk about it. But, y'all, that's me giving according to my riches. And you know what it does? It makes me stingy. Because if I give to someone, I have less. That's not what Paul prays for. Paul prays that we would be given according to the riches of God's glory. Well, that's a whole different ball of wax, isn't it? Y'all, God's glory is far different than my fries. God's glory, it works more like your love for your children. You know, you have one child, and you love him with everything you have. But when you have a second child, you don't take half of your love away from the other child. No, somehow, even though you were giving all of your love, somehow now there's more. There's more. When God reaches down and he gives you his glory and his grace, he doesn't have less. He never has less. He has abundantly, exceedingly more again and again and again. There's always more. There's an exceeding abundance of his glory and his grace for you. Where? Where does it go to? He says his inner self. Now, my inner self, y'all, it's everything except this handsome exterior that you see, okay? It's my whole, would you count as you? Your personality, your thoughts, your desires, your uh, emotions, Your personality, all of it. It's all of that. That's your inner self. Now, notice something here. The focus of the prayer is that God will do something in you, not around you. Now, often we want God to use his strength and his power and his might to fix everything else out there. Paul says, no, no, no. I'm praying for that glory and that strength and that power to work inside of you. In your inner self. And when he does, Paul says, there will be two results. The first is that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith. Y'all, this is the great purpose. This is what God wants to do in your life right here, to dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, we've got to understand something. When we say heart, usually we mean like, your emotions. So your brain is your your mind is your thoughts. Your heart is your emotion. They understood it much more holistically than that. Your heart was like your inner self. It's your. It's all of you. It's everything. Your, it's your emotions, but it's also your will. It's your thoughts. It's all of it. It's a, another way of saying your inner self. That word "dwell" means to be at home. It means to settle down. He's praying here. He's, he's saying. I don't want Christ to simply rent a room in your heart temporarily. I want Him to move in, make Himself at home, take over the whole thing. Second thing, the second consequence of what will happen is that you will be rooted and grounded in love. This word "rooted" it's uh, agricultural metaphor. You know, think of a tree with deep roots. Grounded, it's architecture meant to say the same thing. Picture a, a building with a firm foundation. He's saying he will make it so that the, the foundation of every thought, word, deed you have is love. Now, what is love? We got to answer that question. Well, Jesus showed us when he went and he washed his disciples' feet. And he said, I'm doing this to help you understand what's going to happen tomorrow because I want you to live lives the same way. And then he went to the cross. So we know that love is working for someone's highest good, a great. Personal sacrifice. So understand what Paul is praying here. Paul is not praying for you to have an emotion, for you to have some kind of warm fuzzy. He is praying that your whole life becomes built on sacrificial love. Why? Because that's what God is like. And we got to understand these two go together. See, when, when Christ dwells in you, when he sets up home and takes over your whole heart, you become like him. When his love comes into you, you become a person Of love. So that's his first request. Here's his second request. Sounds a lot like the first that you would be strengthened to comprehend. Now, this fascinates me. This is so surprising to me. Paul he prays for the power for you to know something. Isn't that interesting? So So not the power for you to do good, not even the power for you to avoid sin, not even the power for you to accomplish miracles, not even, not even the power for you to love God. Because Paul knows, listen, it's not your love that's gonna do anything. It's God's love that matters. It is God's love that changes everything. And our only hope is not for us to go do something. Our only hope is for us to know the love of God. So Paul prays, I want you to be as intimately familiar as possible with God's love for you. Because that's what's going to change everything. He says he wants us to, to know the unfathomable love of God. Well, that's a little bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? He's saying there's a a mystery here to God's love. It's it's more than math. It's more than just head knowledge. It's supernatural. A.W. Tozer probably made the best effort of anyone I've read of describing this. This is how he talks about God's love. He says, because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea, before which we kneel in joyful silence, and from which the loftiest eloquence retreats, confused and abashed. Now that's poetic. That's essentially a a fancy way of saying there are no words to fully explain God's love. God's love can't be measured. It can't be fully explained. It cannot be fully comprehended, but it can be experienced. It can be experienced by you. God wants you to experience something more profound than you can explain or that you can do for yourself. Something exceedingly, abundantly more than you ever expected. And that something is his love for you. He wants you to know it with every fiber of your being, men and women. He says you can be filled with the fullness of God. Again, we see Paul's not praying for God to do something big out there. He's praying for God to do something big in here. To be filled with the fullness of God. Now, y'all, when I was a kid, my mom used to tell me all the time I was full of it. She never specified what the it is. Uh, I'm guessing she does not mean the fullness of God. Our nature is to be filled. We're filled with all kinds of things, aren't we? Self, bitterness, envy, doubt, anxiety, even evil. And Jesus wants to replace all of that with him, all of him. He wants to hold nothing back, none of himself back. The same power, think about this, the same power that led the Israelites through the unsurvivable desert for 40 years, the same power, we learned in Colossians, that created the whole earth and everything that is, the same power that raised Christ from the dead wants to dwell in you, all of it, holding nothing back. Men and women, this is the true generosity of God. He doesn't want to just give you some stuff. He wants to give you himself. This is his ultimate provision for you, his ultimate generosity towards you. It is himself. And it's almost, you read this verse, and it's almost right then as Paul begins to think about this. As he thinks about God's love, he has to stop and just worship. Because what he does now is he, he shifts from praying to praise. Verse 20. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Some of the greatest doxology in all of Scripture. And his worship really really makes one claim. God is able. God is proficient beyond you beyond your sin beyond your brokenness beyond your broken relationships beyond your financial hardship beyond even your mind he says beyond all we can ask or think your brain isn't the limiting factor on god did you know that it's he's so much bigger and he, he attempts to explain how much bigger so he says far and actually in the original far means farther it's just always more farther and he says abundantly, which means far more. So you want to know how big, much bigger? Farther, far more. And then he adds beyond, which means even more. Paul's saying, gang, we're going to run out of adjectives before we run out of his power or his love for you. Now, I was the youngest sibling. Quick show of hands, who's the youngest sibling in their family around here? Yes, youngest unite. You'll, you'll, you will identify with this story. That older brother, you know, every once in a while, he'd have some friends over. Of course, I want to go play with my big brother and his friends, and they'd be throwing the football or whatever, and finally, well, yeah, 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 we'll throw it to you, you know. Hey, go deep, go deep. And I'd run, you know, run down, look. No, 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 keep going, farther, farther, keep going. Oh, okay, keep running, farther, keep going. Of course, they let me get about a quarter mile away, and they just turn around and walk inside and leave me out there. How much can God do? Farther, farther, keep going. You want to know what God has planned? Farther, farther, keep going. That's what he's saying. It is a more that never ends. And in fact, did you know this is the picture that the Bible gives us of eternity? Listen, when we get into eternity, we're going to see day one, we will see the fullness of his glory. And then day two, somehow there will be more. And then more after that, and then more after that. And more for that. Day one will be perfect. Day two will be more perfecter. And after that, and after that, I know it boggles the mind. It defies our imagination. I know perfecter is not a word. I know this. And yet, we can't comprehend how exceedingly abundant our God is. And we'll experience it every day one day. So I want you to stop and think about this. Have you ever considered? That when God doesn't do what you expected him to do, or when he doesn't do what you wanted him to do, have you ever stopped to think, maybe God isn't doing less, he's doing more? I mean, think about Think about the Israelites wandering around in the desert for 40 years. It's hot. They need food and water. They're bickering with each other. Some of them are dying from snake bites, okay? They can't get along. And some of them just want to go back to Egypt, back into slavery. What is the best? that The the most optimistic one among them. What's the best that they could hope for? Maybe, maybe one day we'll make it into Canaan. And then maybe one day we'll learn to keep the law. Men and women, neither of those things ever happened. That generation is not the generation that would make it into the promised land. And no generation would ever learn to keep the law. So let me ask you, was God doing less than they expected or was he doing more? I think we have to say, if we're honest, he was doing exceedingly, abundantly more than what they ever imagined. In fact, through them, he was praying the way for his son to come to the earth and build his kingdom. I think about Paul. You know, as Paul's writing the letter to the Ephesians, sitting in his jail cell, what's the best Paul could hope for? I think maybe, hey, maybe I'll get out of jail, maybe the church in Ephesus will survive, and I'll get to go see one day. None of that ever happened. Paul would be martyred. Yo, the city of Ephesus doesn't exist today, let alone the church of Ephesus. But then we have to stop and ask, was God doing less or more than Paul expected? I think we have to say exceedingly, abundantly more. Yo, Paul, the patch of dirt we sit on right now, Paul had no idea it even existed. And yet here we stand or sit reading his words, and how many countless believers have come to faith or have been encouraged through Paul's words right now. i got to believe right now, every day in heaven, Paul just wakes up with his jaw on the floor. He, he, must, he must look at God and say, you know what, God? You didn't get me out of prison. You didn't end my suffering. You didn't fix everything. You didn't make me rich. But you did exceedingly abundantly more than all I could have ever asked or imagined. So he writes, therefore to him be all the glory. All the glory is due to him. And this is the only appropriate reaction from our heart that has known the love of God. He says, all generations and forever. Did you know, I hope you know that God is working in your life for far more than your life. There is a bigger story going on here and that bigger story is always God's glory. So when we say when we say that God is always doing more than we expect that more the more is always his glory. That more that God is always doing is his glory. That's what there's always exceedingly abundantly more of. That's what he is always working towards. That's what there's always more of in his generosity towards us is that we get to receive his glory, and then we get to spread it, he spreads it through us. And so listen, if you, if you come to church, and it's easy to do, to come to church looking for a different deal from God. Some kind of deal where, hey, I try to be good, and then you make me, uh, you bless me, you make me a little more comfortable, you give my kids uh, a good life, something along those lines. Listen, you are missing out, because this isn't about us, even a little bit. It is all about him. See, it's not that God is a part of my story. It's that my life exists for his glory. And that's exactly what you were created for. And so he ends by saying, amen. Now understand, amen, it doesn't just mean you can eat now, okay? <laughs> amen, it, it's kind of a formal invitation. It's this invitation to agree and to respond and so Paul is asking us to respond as the church in Christ for all generations, giving glory to God. And I thought this week, you know, what, what would it look like to pray for more, not of whatever I want, but more of God's glory? And I think Paul, he prayed, God, more than release me from prison, would you use me in prison for your glory? What would it look for me? What, what would it look like for me to pray for more of God's glory. I think I'd start praying, hey God, don't do what I think. Do more than I think. God, more than lose my sickness, would you use my sickness? Lord, more than give my kids a comfortable life, would you give them a higher purpose? Lord, more than make me happy, would you make me holy? Lord, more than free me from my circumstance, would you fill me with your presence? Lord, more than be a part of my story, would you use me for your glory? And that's exactly what the next four weeks is all about here at Bethel Bible Church. You know, every August we do this. Every August we revisit some, some aspect of our vision, or sometimes we cover our whole vision. This time we're going to spend the entire month talking about our generosity. Because we are here. Here we sit at this 40 year old, 40 year threshold. We can look back and we can see that all God has exceedingly and abundantly done. And then we can look forward and we can say, you know what? It is time. For us to trust the same God for the next generation and commit to making His glory known. This is what Moses was doing, these verses we read in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy and Exodus. What he's doing there, he's sending them into their future in light of their past at this 40 year marker. He, He is reminding them of God's provision over the past 40 years. Why? Because the time has come for them to look to the next 40 years. And so at Bethel, listen, it is time for us to do what others have done for us. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do today. I'm going to ask that you would begin to pray with me, to pray with Paul, that we would be changed, that we would know God, that we would be used for his glory. Would you begin that prayer process with me right now? Second thing I'm going to ask for you is, would you make Sundays a priority this month? Now, listen, all the studies say, you know, even the most committed Christians come to church about twice a month. Actually, that number has dipped below twice a month. It's like 1.8, 1.9, something like that. I'm going to ask that we all come to church on Sunday this month. Hey, if you're going out of town, I'm going to ask you get back home. Get back home in time to be at church on Sunday. I'm going to ask when school starts in a couple weeks and you're tired and exhausted and run all over the place, which you will be. Come anyway. Just be prepared for that and come anyway. Guys, this is something we got to do together. We got to do as a family. And so we need to be here. Third thing I'm going to ask you to do you all had this booklet in your chairs. I'm going to ask you to take it home with you. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's in here. I know a lot of you have flipped through it. We've got a really cool history of Bethel in here, a lot of stuff that you probably didn't know that we can look back and see how God provided. There's also, towards the back, and I think we have a picture up here. Uh, you'll find some sermon notes in here for every Sunday. Bring this back with you next Sunday. Begin to take notes. Begin to read these passages. There's also uh, in here family devotions. So for each week, there's passages, devotions, and prayer points that you can do in your home. So I'm asking you that this week you would sit down. If, if you've got a whole family, everybody sit down together. It's just you. Sit down with yourself. If you've got a roommate, sit down with your roommate. And begin to read these scriptures and talk about the scriptures and begin to pray. And then I'm going to ask you this week that you look at, we've got a projects page right here. And this is where you'll find some of the details. we will probably answer some of the questions you have. So over the next two years across all of our campuses, we're seeking to raise $6 million. And we've seeking to do that with some projects that we know of, and frankly, guys, some that we don't know yet. But that's Okay couple things you'll see highlighted in there. So there's an opportunity downtown that God has opened up. So in there, if you've never been to our downtown campus, I mean, they're landlocked. They're in downtown. It's not the biggest building in the world. And they're having to turn away kids in their nursery and some of their ministry spaces. They're running out of space. So what do you do? You're landlocked. You're in downtown. You can't just, you know, build on the lot next to you. What do you know? God has opened up the building right next door. And it has parking with it. It comes with a parking lot. I mean, this doesn't happen. And so that opportunity has come up, and we want to be able to capitalize on it. You'll see on there it talks about debt reduction. Really, that is our purchase of our HOPE campus. So God dropped another opportunity in our lap. where We were able to buy the property they were already meeting in at a great price with some subleasers. Too good to pass up. And, y'all, I will tell you, since we did that, that place has become an outreach center for North Tyler. There is not a day that goes by that there's not somebody in that building with some form of community work or ministry happening. In fact, I just wanted this week, every month, every month, the food bank feeds 300 families out of that campus. Isn't that amazing? There's a school that meets there getting ready to start their year. There's lots of ministry happening. And so we want to reduce the debt that came from purchasing that property. There's also another project, two projects in Sierra Leone. Uh, we want to build another church, another school, but then you'll see another line in there that talks about more permanent options for leased campuses. Gang, that's us. That's us, okay? That's us, and that's Henderson. We're currently renting, leasing our space, and y'all, this space has been God's provision in so many ways. We may be here forever. I don't know, but we, we want to know. We want to have a permanent foothold in this White House community. So what does that look like? This is where we get into the, the Part you'd fall under the heading, we don't know. We've been diligently, and we will continue to diligently explore every option. But God hasn't opened the door yet. But we want to be ready when he does. And so that's what that's for. It says on there, so the last two Sundays of August, the 21st and the 28th, we'll be asking everyone in Bethel, all members, to make a two-year commitment for this uh, vision and, and these steps forward that we've laid out. And so we'd say, hey, if you're, if you're giving right now, first let me say, thank you. We need it. That's amazing. These lights don't pay for themselves. And I hope you know that, that those resources and that money has been used for God's glory, the best that we can do. And so if that's you, we're going to ask you to give above and beyond what you're currently giving to make some of these things happen. Now, if you're here and you're not giving, we're going to ask you to start here. Hey, gang, just try it over the next two years, try to step out in obedience to what God calls us to and see what he does. And after that two years, you can always say, well, that was a bunch of hooey. I'm not doing that anymore. I promise you won't do that though. See, there's really two goals with what we're doing here. And it is so vitally important that we keep them in order. So the secondary goal is that God provides us with the resources that we need to to do what we feel like he's called us to do. That is important, but it's secondary. The primary goal is that we are changed. And we are changed so that our lives are radically reoriented around God's glory. Our primary goal is that Paul's prayer comes true in our inner being, in our whole heart. Let me say it this way. Listen, if you write a check, but you aren't changed, we've done it wrong. We've missed an opportunity. Our number one goal is that we would be a people whose hearts have been totally renovated by the love of God. See, I want to do something more than raise money. I want to raise up people. I want to send out a group of generous people who have been filled with the fullness of God and overflow his love into the world. That's our priority. And so I want this to be a place where there is generosity in our life groups, where there's more people than we can count open in their homes to one another. There's generosity in our children's ministry, where we can't wait for the opportunity to teach the most difficult child about the love of God. I want this community, White House, to be blessed beyond recognition by our generosity. That's what will happen if we are changed by the love of God. Think about it this way. God doesn't need our money. He doesn't. He wants our hearts. He wants to transform us into generous people who exist for his glory. And so I'd put it this way. If I I have to pick one of those priorities, I'm picking number one every time. To the extent, look, if you can't live generously here with your time, with your talents, with your resources, my hope is that you can do it somewhere else because the type of person that you are is so much more important than any project we can come up with. In fact, in fact, if Paul's prayer will come true in yourself, in your inner being, if your hearts will be radically oriented around the glory of God, the impact of your life will far outlast any building we can build long after we are dead and gone, long after all our buildings have crumbled, God's glory will continue through all generations forever and ever. I want to close with a quote I read from a guy named J.B. Phillips. He wrote a, a commentary on the New Testament epistles. And as he's writing this, he he kind of marvels at their faith, at their sacrifice, at their generosity in the early church and he compares it with what he sees around him. And he asks, you know, what's the difference? What's the difference between them and us? He writes this. The greatest difference between present-day Christianity and that of which we read in these letters is that to us, it's primarily a performance. To them, it was a real experience. We are apt to reduce the Christian religion to a code or at best, a rule of heart and life to these men it is quite plainly the invasion of their lives by a new quality of life altogether they do not hesitate to describe this as christ living in them we are practically driven to accept their own explanation which is that their little human lives had through christ been linked up with the very life of god these early christians were on fire with the conviction that they had become through Christ literal sons of God. They were pioneers of a new humanity, founders of a new kingdom. They still speak to us across the centuries. Perhaps if we believed what they believed, we might achieve what they achieved. Paul, these men we read about in the New Testament, they simply believed their lives had been invaded by an exceedingly abundant God-